Cassette Podcast Network. Lions and Tigers and Bears MI brought to you through a collaboration between the Mountain Plains ATTC and NFAR Tech. In episode 20, Paul and Amy welcome Dr. Antoine to discuss teaching MI. For episode resources, links to episodes, contact us, and other information, please visit the Lions and Tigers and Bears MI website at mtplainsattc.org forward slash podcast. and Tigers and Bears, MI, an interactive podcast focused on the evidence-based practice of motivational interviewing, a method of communication that guides toward behavior change while honoring autonomy. I'm Amy Shanahan. And I'm Paul Warren. And we've worked together over the past 10 years. We've been facilitating MI learning collaboratives and providing trainings and coaching sessions focused on the adoption and refinement of MI we're also members of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. Join us in this adventure into the forest where we explore and get curious about what lies behind the curtain of MI. Hey, Paul. Hello, Amy. I'm so excited again. I love these series that we have now that we're inviting people to join us. I share your excitement, and I have to say, I'm delighted that this guest agreed to be on the show with us because I have heard about him for so long. It's a real honor and a pleasure to finally meet him. Well, you know what? The listeners have heard about him, too. They just don't know it. Ah. Yeah. So Elaborate, please. <laughs> there may have been times when I've talked about a mentor. There may, I don't think... But there might have been an instance where I tried to do a beautiful French accent and didn't do it very well. But Antoine Dewehi, my mentor of, oh gosh, now 25 years. No, just kidding. About 14 or 15 years or so, Antoine have, and I have worked together and I hold him high in esteem as one of my lovely mentors who... I'll let him introduce himself and say hello so we could hear that French accent that's real. <laughs> no pressure, Antoine. None. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Antoine. Thank you so much for joining us. And please tell the listeners who you are and maybe a little bit of your MI background, whatever you'd like to tell them. Thank you so much, Amy and Paul, for inviting me. And uh, one thing to clarify from what you were saying, Amy, is that I think we've co-mentored each other throughout these really uh, significant years of uh, our work at Western Psych, you know, and uh, I'm very grateful for that. And uh, great meeting you, Paul, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, a great conversation here and, uh, you know, inspiring one, you know, and uh, so quickly about me, I don't, I don't want to really kind of spend too much time on that, but in terms of my background, I've been an addiction psychiatrist for close to 25 years, and I have practiced uh, uh, addiction psychiatry and did the clinical work, uh, did a lot of research, and I, I would say, you know, my biggest uh, really interest has been in the advocacy and activism 
peace, you know, on different level, national level, local levels, you know, and my biggest really interest has been in the psychology of behavior change and motivation interviewing that I, I would say has kind of defined me, you know, defined my career and defined me as, as really a person, you know, um, and, um, and I'm so glad to be here and uh, share my perspective and listen to your perspectives and you know and uh, uh, hopefully we will be uh, in a way inspiring to the audience and uh, you know uh, giving us the ability to at least uh, use our own experience and with the hope they can learn something from us and you know and hopefully learning some things from them too you know and as you you said you've been in touch with a lot of uh, you know uh, your audience you know i would would love to really hear back feed about the feedback what they think you know and what sort of things you know they would want to also see differently about uh, you know that type of discussion well it's interesting that you say that because this episode was really prompted by our listeners' request and the topic around teaching motivational interviewing mm -hmm. and teaching it not just in the community practices, also in universities and schools. So you have that breadth of experience at the University of Pittsburgh and the School of Medicine and the work that you do uh, in vivo in the hospital. So we're so fortunate to have you share with us some of your experiences. And I know that you might be being a little humble and, and I'm heartfelt your commentary about co-mentoring each other. Uh, but boy, am I feel like I'm standing on your shoulders. Antoine, tell Paul and the listeners, when you first joined the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, when was that and where? I uh, uh, did my uh, training, the new trainer, back in Paris in 2002. And uh, at that time, it was really fascinating. We were, uh, it was run by uh, Steve Rolnick. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were in like a small room, like we were around 50 people. That's all at that time in 2002. And in, the, in this, I'm trying to remember the name of that hotel in Paris. You know, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't remember the name of that hotel, but it was such a cozy kind of very intimate training that we uh, uh, we did, and uh, it was an incredible experience because there were people from all over the world, uh, Europeans, you know, uh, people from uh, you know Asia, uh, from the U.S., from uh, uh, so it it was an incredible experience, you know, and I. Recall at that time, it really, in a way, uh, uh, it was the beginning of that career that I started establishing when it comes to the psychology of behavior change and motivation interviewing, career in training, teaching, as well as implementing uh, programs that would incorporate motivation interviewing as an evidence-based approach, whether we talk about addiction settings or even community treatment settings, uh, or even medical settings, which was really huge. You know, at that mm. time it was not very, uh, very well disseminated. Let's put it this way. And as as we always say, the dissemination piece is like the diffusion of innovation is always very challenging. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, we've encountered a lot of obstacles. Uh, at the same time, the, the, the experience was really incredible because you learn throughout the way of implementing and disseminating a lot of the challenges and, and what, what needs to be addressed. And this applies very, very much to the training and the teaching piece, which has to be incorporated and into really the implementation and dissemination of uh, MI and other therapeutic approaches, obviously, and, and integrating them with MI, which is, as we know, very crucial to mm. You know, as you say that, Antoine, it, it really reminds me of the significant evolution that the practice of motivational interviewing in and of itself, regardless of the teaching and the training, but that the practice in and of itself, Bill and Steve are about to release their fourth edition of the book. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine given that your TNT was in 2002, you've seen and participated in the dissemination of that evolution. And it reminds me of a very uh, specific sort of change that I've made in my approach to teaching and training motivational interviewing. And I'm wondering if this might be a good way to kind of kick off getting into some of the nuts and bolts of training. And and what I will frame it as under the heading of is a change in duration. And what I mean by that is that when we started our practice an implementation institute in New York City to train substance use disorder providers in the evidence-based practice of motivational interviewing, we would do a five full day in-person training. Amy, this is radio, but Amy's eyes just like bugged out. (laughs) But we would do a five in five day- Intent, yes, that's exactly how we framed it too. Intensive training. And I have to tell you, where I sit today with this program, we've evolved the training into six classroom hours followed with intensive post-training practice support. So we invest six hours in helping people to understand the concepts, the language, all of that. And then we dive immediately into putting it into practice and focusing and reflecting on that practice. Mm-hmm. So I, I throw that out to you and Amy from your perspectives, just as a starting place about the change in duration of training. Yeah. I would love to hear Amy's perspective on that. <laughs> uh, well, it, it it's it's such the word evolution always comes to mind because I could say on this episode, what I'm going to say, and I might answer it differently next week or next month, but, <laughs> but you know, whether one day, two day, but when you said five days, I was like, Holy cow, work people, people will request trainings and say, Oh, I want to learn how to do MI in two hours. <laughs> and I recently have been coaching someone who said, who's, a practitioner in behavioral health care, and she's always been curious in MI, and to your point, Antoine, how to integrate it into what they're already doing, whether she was doing DBT or CBT or some other theory or <clears throat> practice, she said, well, what do you recommend I do differently, or what do you recommend I spend my 
let's say thousand dollars on. And I actually got curious about her learning style first, asked her what she already knew, and then invited her to consider spending all of her money on practice. And if I thought there was something that she might benefit from reading, and, and I think I got that from you, you, Antoine. I know that when you're teaching the students and watching them practice, you'll also invite them to read an article or go back to a chapter in a book. Um, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong when it's time for you to <laughs> chime in. But I, I adapt a lot of what I do to the needs of the people, to yes. that are the learner, to understand what they already know. Learner-driven, you know, process, basically. Right. How do they learn? A five-day training might scare people away. Another would, I was talking to a group of people today that said they would rather have an immersion, that yeah. we were actually talking about the semantics of the word, training, workshop, learning community. And is it a, you know, sheep, you know, wolf dressed in a sheep's clothing by just changing the word? What does it mean? And um, I guess I would say that we know what we know that workshops don't end in skill building and we know that there's skill drift. So we have a lot of science behind even learning, let alone. So I, I guess it's a long answer that was circuitous and didn't really end anywhere, but I, I really, other than it, we have to evolve to meet the needs of the learners. Well, I mean, to build on uh, your, your, discussion, your discussion, your perspective on that and Paul's perspective, you know, the, the first thing that I approach when I'm going to be teaching and doing training, let's say we're starting with an audience that is naive, you know, or not really totally green, not really uh, having much exposure, you know, to that approach. I always really throw the question of why train in a mind. I would want to know from them uh, how did they get to know about it? What, you know, what was appealing to them about MI? Where did they hear it? What context? What, and we were talking about, what is their context? What, what do they do? And we have a diverse, basically, people from different backgrounds. And also, let's keep in mind, the diversity, also geographically, diversity of, of people's background themselves. You know, that doing a lot of that work, whether we're doing substance use work, doing, you know, uh, <clears throat> working in medical settings or working community treatment programs or working in some sort of leadership uh, management. You know, we talked about that. I mean, it's so, uh, it, you know, and it could be in different kind of a setting. And I always really wanted to get that perspective because, you know, it's kind of easy to really present it to them that from that kind of a context that it is evidence-based uh, uh, treatment you can present all the data you like you know over the course of 20 years 25 years i don't think people are necessarily interested in being you know uh, overwhelmed with that stuff and even you know my medical trainees you know that i uh, you know work with you know they they would want some kind of really uh, 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 guidance in terms of how is it evidence-based how is it applied what in the context of the work that I do. And I have a lot of residents who do what we call like a triple board. They are pediatricians, child psychiatrists, and child psychiatry, uh, psychiatrists. And they want to know how they can incorporate all this into their work. You know, so it's not kind of in a way easy. 
you know, and I always kind of really try to point out that it's simple enough that with, again, and going back to the question, how, how really intense the training has to be. And it, it, it can be really simple enough to the trainees that they can gain. Again, we talk about linguistic and semantics here, competency, or I don't know, maybe use the word competency, may, maybe proficiency, you know, in, in probably in four weeks of intensive training. You know, that you could, you could start really that whole process if they follow it, obviously, with in the, 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 uh, in the feedback, the uh, in vivo, you know, coaching, you know, and constructive criticism and uh, supervision we talk about. We use, again, all these kind of different words. You know, the other thing is that we want to also present it to them as it is complicated, it can get complicated enough that it might not be the four weeks that we're talking about or the six, the six lectures or the, the five days might not be enough to really build that sort of, uh, 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 and it depends on their goals, depends on their goals and objectives. And if they want really just bits and pieces and to incorporate it as a style is different than learning the therapeutic approach. And I, I would say that it's easier to uh, uh, in a way work with them and help them embrace the spirit, which is not easy. <laughs> help them, it's easier than obviously the other aspect of it, building that, that uh, proficiency in terms of reflective listening, which I, from my perspective, reflective listening and evocative, the evocation, you know, are the two major pieces that would require that intensive type of work so i mean and 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 from that context you know then you can have some sense of where you want to go with the duration of training mm -hmm. you know would you want to also uh, uh, you can have a diverse group and i'm uh, uh, i have a diverse group of training because i have medical students i have residents here so i i would want to really kind of sometimes separate as you said you know based on people's goals and objectives where they want to go uh, just uh, you know and tailor it again person more the person-centered uh, training and and tailor it to what they are really looking for and how we can adapt and uh, adjust it adjust that sort of training based on that particular group versus a different group mm. so i i would underline um a couple of different things that we're hearing here because Oftentimes, I think when we are approached to teach or train motivational interviewing, what they want is they want their folks, their team, their staff to be able to make the clients change. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the first things we have to do is kind of uh, myth management <laughs> in the sense of that MI is just not a way to get people to change. So I, I think that that's one part of the preparing the ground for fruitful training or teaching. I think the other thing that you said, Antoine, that really made so much sense to me is that the training and the teaching approach has to be learner-centered just like when you're practicing MI, you have to tailor how you use the practice of MI to the ind the unique individual that's in front of you. So there's a there's a real parallel process, I think, between 
the training of folks, the teaching of MI to folks in helping them to understand the flexibility required in being proficient with motivational interviewing. Because if I'm having a conversation about behavior change with you, it's not going to be the same conversation that I'm having with Amy about the behavior change that she's considering. It may be similar tools. It may have similar tasks that we're trying to accomplish, but I have to be flexible enough to know that it's going to be a different conversation because I'm speaking to two different people. And I think a lot of the expectation that learners sometimes, and the wish that learners have about motivational interviewing is that there is a formula And that just tell me the formula and I'll say what I need to say to make this person change. And and this is an excellent point because, you know, particularly a lot of therapists are used to the formula in DBT, in CBT, you know, in IPT, all these kind of therapies that you follow that sort of a scenarios and manualized, you know, approach. And and we know very well from a ton of studies when you really, when MI is used in a manualized approach, the outcomes are not as good. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the point you're really making is that we have a lot of therapists, we have a lot of community programs where it's the same thing with medical settings. Can you please teach us how to discuss with patients, you know, about behavior change? How can we involve the family so they can get their son to retake the medications for their diabetes, you know, for their heart disease and all this. And it's a very tough conversations because they are really, uh, 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 even, you know, uh, patients and their family members and concerned significant others are very, uh, how can I say, conditioned or reinforced by that kind of a notion that you know, that there are these particular things. The same thing with medication. You take that medication, you have that condition, uh, kidney condition, you take the medication, everything is going to be fine. And so it's it kind of translates into really therapeutic approaches, particularly with, with any type of really therapies, but particularly they look for the MI to be that sort of really, uh, 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 I don't know, magical approach or that's going to that's gonna really transform people, you know, ability to uh, to really make the change. And, and it, this is a very tough one to to work through with, with 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 healthcare practitioners as well as you know family members, you know, and patients, you know, in general. Mm-hmm. You know, I I want to interject with a story here, Antoine, that I'm going to tell that includes you, and you're here. <laughs> I tell this story often, and it. It resonates with this notion of people who ask us to train or practitioners that want to use MI to get people to do something. I remember being right there at the corner of your, I would think I was in the threshold of your door. And I don't know what I said, but you got really passionate. (laughs) And you said to me, we don't get people to do anything. There it is. How's that French accent? Pretty good. Nicely done. Yes. And you repeated yourself several times to me. And I I was very impassioned back and said, I don't know why you're saying it to me. Why are you saying that? 
And it was really powerful. And I'm getting chills just recounting the story because when I walked away, I realized that I was practicing motivational interviewing skills. I was doing my darndest to model the spirit. Mm -hmm. And part of me still was hanging on and I didn't know it was more unconscious that I thought I could still get people to change. Well, you know, I, I experience the same thing sometimes. I, I kind of end up catching myself, you know, mm -hmm. the way I say it, you know, and because I get also frustrated nor naturally, you know, that, I, you know, I see patients, you know, doing the same thing over and over again is that, uh, so it is, it is not really, as long as you're really aware of it, which really speaks to the importance, I know we're going to get to it, to the feedback, you know, to, mm -hmm. the, to the, the, particularly the part of the feedback about, about really not feeding into that delusion that most practitioners, you know, have that kind of a tendency to be, to believe that they are accurate in assessing their own performance or the impact of what they are doing which we know very well, a lot of people think that they are doing better than, you know, they than are. they are. And yeah. which is not really, it's a delusion. And this is where the role of the feedback and the in vivo coaching really kind of disrupts that sort of a delusion and makes people realize, wait a second. Mm -hmm. No, I think I'm, I'm not really, I believe that I thought I was doing it better. I mean, this is how you do it, the guys with the, with the supervision and really monitoring fidelity and all these aspects. And, you know, I would, I would underline two things about that too, because my take is that the key to adopting the practice of motivational interviewing, the key to refining one's skills and practice abilities is Am I consistent feedback and coaching? Yes. Because, I, because I have heard people receive coaching and feedback and it has not been strengths-based. It has not been growth opportunity-based and it's left people feeling disheartened or shamed or, and, and to your point earlier, Antoine, uh, and, and Amy's story, I think kind of evoked this, that. I don't know if you've had this experience, but Amy and I have even mentioned it in prior episodes that you, you can poll people in a room and ask them if they're practicing motivational interviewing and everyone will say that they're practicing motivational interviewing. And they they say that because they're using the core communication skills. It's not because they're actually helping the person to explore ambivalence about a particular behavioral change goal, nor are they helping that person to strengthen their motivation for that particular behavioral change goal. It's simply because they equate the practice of motivational interviewing with the use of ORs, the core communication skills. So I think that's another thing that we, as we lay the foundation for effective teaching of MI, and training of MI that we help people to understand it's far more than simply using the core communication skills. You know, and I want to add too that you, you added something that is such a passion of mine, supervision and feedback and Paul echoing the MI consistent feedback. And another parallel is the MI consistent feedback 
And also when we're teaching and training, I think there's a lot of parallel similarities to adult learning needs and motivational interviewing. Antoine, you said, you know, being curious about what the learner knows already. Why, why did they come to the table? Really thinking about their defenses. I'm already learning them. I already do am I? What are you going to teach me? So how do we create an environment where people are curious and open to that supervision and live feedback? And one quick other piece to my relationship with Antoine was when I went to my training of new trainers, I was sitting at the table in Montreal in 2016 with two of Antoine's residents. Oh, yes. I don't know if I could name them, but I will, Dan and Josh, if you're- Josh and Dan. <laughs> and I was flabbergasted. And this points back to duration. I had been teaching MI for probably a good, maybe two decades, and maybe otherwise known as teaching the stages of change more than MI for many of those years. And I sit down with these two residents. I don't know what they came to the table with before they got to Antoine, but I, my job was on the ground because they were so not even just skilled. You could just feel their passion. You could feel their spirit. You could hear their curiosity. They knew it as if they'd been practicing it, it seemed, for 20 years. And I'm like, I don't, what? And I think that that speaks to the duration and the intensity of the supervision and the feedback around their skill. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent point. And you know, I, I do believe it's, you're talking about more the impact because the impact can be, I know that Paul talked about that intensive training, and I know that we're probably, you know, we, we you know, obviously there is a preference, you know, you can do it in a less intense, at the same time, uh, you can still provide, you know, what is really kind of needed, you know, in, in terms of really training, you know, so that could be different variations. I wouldn't say one is better than the other. I can never really say it's not about really the duration five days is better than three, four days. Obviously, the advantage is if you get a bigger dose, you would assume that people are going to build more skills. I mean, that's that's a possibility. I mean, I mean, we see it in MI when, when you really in clinical trials of MI, uh, there are some trials that looked at one dose can work very well maybe two, three, four doses could have a better impact. It's kind of still questionable and debatable depending on the clinical trials. You know, and one of the things that the, the example you gave about my former residents, Amy, is that they have really embraced, even though they have not received, you know, years and years of training or supervision or, and they work with me for a short period of time, they, what they did, they they absorbed it, they embraced it, they felt it was a, a, a part of their fabric, part of their who they are as people, as person. Like one of them, in fact, you know, he was a big researcher. He he did a lot of translation research and he he walked away from it. He said, I want to go back and work with patients. I feel like I, you know, I, I can do much more. I can have much more of an impact. You know, mm -hmm. and, and what drove that in him is the 
embracing the MI spirit and loving it. And when, he, when they talk about it, and you've seen it, when they talk about it, both of them, you know, I get inspired myself. I said, what happened? Like, how did they, I mean, obviously I, I would take some credit that they were able for whatever reason to really kind of connect with that, connect that part of them, that deep part of them, the heart set, you know, as Steve will talk about the heart set, which is very hard for a lot of people. When you mention the word heart set, they look at you. It's like, what are you talking about? The heart set is they connected with who they are mm-hmm. and, and, and they build on it. And as you said, Paul, they eventually built on the skills, you know, the oars, the reflective listening, evocative questions, exploring ambivalence, understanding difference between ambivalence, equipoise, all these kind of details of the, of really the, the MI approach. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I appreciate you mentioning the heart set because I think that can sometimes be one of the things that causes folks to believe or not to believe that they're doing MI, but I think it's one of the things that causes people to be attracted to or uh, gravitate toward MI because it really aligns with some the, a humanity in them that that's how they want to treat people. And I think as trainers and teachers of MI, if there's too much emphasis on the technical elements of the practice and the demonstration of those technical elements, and, and Amy, I've heard you mention this because you, you mentioned music metaphors, as does Bill often, it's sort of the, the notes with no melody, or it's, it's, it's sort of music that, okay, it's technically there, but it doesn't stir the soul. Doesn't and it doesn't set thank you it doesn't sound good it doesn't mobilize it doesn't <laughs> mobilize itself. right and and again i think i think the thing with someone who is teaching mi and training mi is you somehow have to create an environment where people can connect that part of themselves to the technical skills because without that connection you know, technical MI doesn't have the same impact as MI that is linked to the heart set. And a lot of Bill's work has been identifying the heart set that's brought to the operationalizing of the skills. You know, Antoine, I have a question for you, and and I don't know if this will be an easy one to answer, but I want to appeal to one of our listeners' questions, and and maybe this will capture some of the essence. In relation to Josh and Dan's training, what do you think are like the three top ingredients that really helped them uh, moving forward, or not just them, but the other students that you've influenced? What are the top three things that you would put on the table? Because we said, you know, there's not one best way. There's not just one only way to do it. What are the three things that you spark, would do? Spark their interest. You mean like that spark, that process that. And to help them. That even, process of your, yeah. To help them continue the learning, whatever it is. What, what are the three key things that you do as yeah. a teacher? trainer mentor uh, that, that's an excellent question you know i uh, uh, i want to go back to what paul mentioned which was really also very uh, inspiring is 
when they've seen me, uh, let's put it this in the comment. You know, I know that there was a question about knowledge and practice. You know, instruction is important. I mean, I have, I, uh, as Amy mentioned before, I recommend some papers for them to read. Just, uh, you know, I don't overwhelm them with too much. You know, obviously, I've always recommended, uh, you know, Miller and Rolnick's book. So this, you know, it's kind of a little bit also heavy reading. You know, I try to really more condense it. Instruction is crucial. Instruction, you know, is going to put a little bit of a context to what are we talking about? You know, and when people really read, you know, that uh, you would expect them to read and process what they're reading. Otherwise, you know, oh, let me go and read, you know, a little bit, whatever it does. So, and it's very fluid. Instruction is very fluid. And you can, I know that you would do training, you can figure it out how you can, the didactic piece, squeeze it in. What I strongly believe is you move into from the instruction you know, knowledge to the practice, practice in practice. There is nothing that's going to replace, and the practice in practice, they're going to be, in a way, the repetition of the skills we talk about. At the same time, what they are going to be practicing, first and foremost, is embracing that spirit. How they practice by embracing the spirit is that they also see, you know, when I really do my own sessions, they, they, there is a modeling aspect. The modeling aspect comes from that, uh, how does he approach this person generally? How does he, you know, uh, approach this person without really uh, telling them, you know, that uh, you have to change if you don't change or using the scare tactics, you know? And so how, because you could really do it in an empathic way by telling people, it can come across as you need to change, you have to change. You can say it with a tone of voice that comes across empathic, but it doesn't. So when they watch you, uh, 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 and this is very crucial, the modeling piece, when they watch you doing the sessions, they kind of, and they are listening, they are listening to everything you're doing and watching your demeanor and, and really paying attention, not to the skills that you're using, not to the evocative, questions or uh, eliciting change talk that's important but the fact that they watch you engage somebody for example a, a person with substance use disorder unstable housing no support system and they see that person really you know uh, uh, being present with you and the person starting to open up about how they feel you know what the impact of it is very is a huge they're gonna see that they can do it themselves and they wanna do it themselves because this is why they went into a helping profession, which is really medicine or particularly psychiatry. Mm -hmm. And from there, I mean, you do the modeling and then comes also the feedback because you know, the, the feedback provides them with a lot of a map for a deliberate practice. You know, we talk about practice, practicing, you can practice go and really, Use, and you talked about it, uh, Paul, you know, just uh, use some of the skills, you know, I don't know what they do in the, in the afternoon. I expect them to go and really practice in a deliberate way, practice by paying attention. At the same time, when you really kind of do you want to learn, the real learning occurs when you go and you extend yourself past your limit and make mistakes. Mm. You know, make mistakes, and, and and this is what I always tell them. It's fine. 
you know, you, you, you really not, you didn't strategically focus here. I don't know what your intentionality, what were you doing with the session? You know, they go and really do it again and do it again and do it again. So in a sense, that really kind of also feedback would provide them with that map for the deliberate practice. And, you know, and from there, they do it. I, it's, not, I, it's not anymore me. That has nothing to do with me. They move on, you know, with their career. They, uh, 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 you know, they continue their own practice. They continue building on their own, really strengthening their own spirit, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, embracing the spirit of MI. And, uh, and, and obviously they love it. They have the compassion for it, you know, and it's like, it becomes like a self, self-fulfilling, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, how can I say, uh, you know, like self-fulfilling uh, process, you know, and, and, and then I, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have to be there anymore. You teach them to want to learn it, continue to learn it. Yes, exactly. And I, I heard three things. The didactic piece is really important. Modeling. Yes. The spirit. Not practice and practice. Not necessarily practice. the skills. And then the, yeah, practice and practice. And that feedback. Um, and I, I was thinking about the time when um, I had the opportunity to get feedback from you and it was, you focused a lot on my tone and my cadence before you ever even talked about the behavioral skills. You didn't even focus heavily on those because those were kind of part yeah. of the puzzle that I could see on the piece of paper, but you were talking about my tone of voice, how yeah. I sounded, which really resonated with that heart set piece. Yeah. Mm. So, so I would, I would make two. I want to make two broad strokes here, just to underline things for our listeners, in the sense that certainly we want to be aware of uh, the duration, the the types of learners that we're having, and this idea that um, yes, there does need to be guided instruction in terms of the content that's offered and the critical component of the modeling and the modeling of the spirit, not just the technical execution of the skills. And, and to that end, I, I, Antoine, I love the way that you put sort of the practice in practice because most training and and I think I don't think I'm going off on a huge out on a huge limb saying this most training stops before people get into the practice so they're they're simply left with the intellectualization of motivational interviewing and it hasn't moved into the practice and yes maybe they saw Antoine do it but whatever the training context is maybe they don't get the opportunity to do it themselves I, I want to throw in one other variable that I've observed in terms of the post-training practice in practice that I've gotten to uh, be a part of, and, and I really do consider it um, an honor to be able to be part of somebody's post-training growth around the implementation of motivational interviewing. We use a model that's that is called a group practice session. 
And, and what that means is a group of people come together. We look at a particular case. Somebody takes on the role of the client. Somebody takes on the role of the practitioner. They practice MI with that person. And we all work through the conversation together and then play it out and pause and reflect and rework it. And, and that model seems to really work. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I've observed that's extraordinary about that model is that let's say the three of us are in this group together and Amy's practicing and she is having the conversation and Amy exhibits a particular strength in use of MI spirit or use of a particular skill that learners are inspired by each other and build their confidence by seeing their peers succeed in a safe practice environment. And I have to tell you, that has gone further than any demonstration that I've ever been able to do because they see each other kind of catching fire in terms of MI. And they're like, oh, well, if Amy did it, I can do that too. Contagious. Yes, it is contagious. And, you know, I'll add to that, if you don't mind, Paul, that we, we did something similar at, at Western Psych, where Antoine and I worked together. It's still going on today. My colleague, Billy Joe, and I, who we've had as a guest on this podcast episode. Twice. Twice. Ooh. <laughs> well, three, yeah. Um, we, by our own passion, wanted to invite people to come. And I just got an email from them this morning that they're they're coming together. And there were substance use disorder practitioners, psychiatrists. Antoine would come in sometimes. If you still do, I don't know Antoine. You're yeah. the tobacco treatment specialist, folks that are that work mm -hmm. with Antoine on that realm. And by by word of passion and mouth, people come to the table. But one thing I wanted to add, we we don't usually do a one practice in front of others. And maybe they change to that, but we practice skills. Everybody's involved in what they want to learn. But underscoring another thing that Antoine said is watching our colleagues grow and do well, watching each other also make mistakes to humanize it and go, oh, phew. You know, yeah. Antoine, I've never seen Antoine make a mistake. Let me think. Maybe. Oh. Maybe once. <laughs> oh, let me let me tell you, I I make mistakes all the time and I I have an internalized supervision system. I, <laughs> you know, reflect on that, you know, and uh, oh no, I'll tell you it's just uh, well, you know, because we're again we're talking about we're human beings. We're gonna mess up sometimes. Mm -hmm. We're gonna deviate from you know uh, uh the the course in terms of uh, i mean we get frustrated with good intentions you know with patients family members systems you know whatever and we might uh, do things and say some things that are really non-adherent non-mi adherent but i think as long as we're really kind of aware of it and really we we correct it and we we realize how we can approach it and you talked about it Amy, you know, when we did together the evidence, the PBL, you remember the practice-based learning mm -hmm. because students, you know, would call them simulated patients, you know, and I've noticed a lot because, you know, I know that we talked about the tone of voice, your demeanor, your, the genuineness that, I mean, all these kind of are display of the spirit. Like you don't have, you know, it might be 
coming across as effortless, but it's effortful. You know what I mean? You're working hard. A lot of people think, oh my God, it's just coming across that you're really so comfortable. And so I said, it comes across this way. At the same time, I'm working hard and smart there because I know where I wanted to go. And I recall very well with, with the session you've had also that your tone of voice with them, your genuineness, you know, because you know, the med students are really very, they are, it's a fascinating group because they are so extremely sensitive, you know, to feedback. Mm-hmm. If you say some things that, you know, that might come, it comes across to them as harsh that, you know, that you mentioned them you mentioned to them, you know, what is the reason you did that? Or again, using a tone of voice, a tone of voice that is very, uh, uh, then comes across condescending or something. So you, to, to them, you know, you have very good intentions. So, but I noticed with Amy, uh, you know, over the course of the years, when they keep always asking her to come and, and do that facilitation of these sessions, you know, I mean, you're, uh, you have built, you know, amazing, you know, that demeanor, you know, that, uh, that really showed them by example, and a lot of them will talk about it afterwards. You know, I mean, we get the feedback that is incredible. That that was very, very helpful. Mm. Mm. You know, Amy, you asked Antoine the question about what he thought the top three things were. Ah, yes. And I'm curious as to what your take would be on that as well, in terms of if you, you know, two people have written to us. And it's wonderful to get feedback. So as Antoine said earlier, we'd love to get feedback on this episode too. But, you know, two people have written to us about guidance, about how to teach, how to train MI. And I'd be very curious as to like what you put on your plate in regard to that. And I I think that Antoine wants to also elaborate and add something to his plate too. I could be wrong, but uh, but I'm, I'd be very curious to know what you put on your plate in regard to that kind of laughing because I seem like I'm the talk show host and I get to ask the tough questions, not have to answer them. <laughs> well, wake up and welcome to the real world. You're, you're um, contributing to the whole incredible conversation, you know, I mean, we, mm-hmm. we do appreciate your perspective and your, you know, Absolutely. experience, you know, so. Well, I, I, I will always piggyback on the supervision and feedback. But to pick up three other things, well, one thing that I'm super passionate about Mm. is inviting people to be in a community where they question things, where they challenge things, and where they synthesize the learning and adapt it to what they already know. And I recently did a training this past week where a gentleman was really questioning and actually outwardly debated that he thinks cheerleading, I'm proud of you, great job, that's awesome, is okay. And in, I could have done one of two things. I could have engaged in a debate, which would have been unproductive. And I didn't choose to do that. I invited the curiosity, honored his autonomy. It's up to you if if cheerleading works for you and that feels good for you. Um, so I'm really passionate about that and uh, in inviting people to just explore things. And I've learned a lot from that process. I th- 
this particular situation happened to um, turn out where the person the next day, like any adult learners, this is what he's been doing for many, many years, if not decades. And I'm now Amy Shanahan, eh, inviting him to consider that let's not cheerlead so much. And, and it was tough for him. So being able to create an environment where people can explore things um, and not be the expert in the room, which is tough. Because I think to your point, Antoine, the didactic piece is important. I would like to say that if folks are coming to the training, they might know less than me, not necessarily. So I just need to put that out there, but they're coming to an MI training. So I am bringing to the, to the table my experience and my knowledge. So it's a dance. It's a tough dance mm -hmm. to get mm -hmm. out of that expert role and teach and give feedback. Yeah. So supervision and creating an environment where people can explore and challenge and synthesize the information. Um, I, I know that folks who may be listening and haven't been to one of my trainings, but Paul, I know you <laughs> have seen me in action and Antoine perhaps as well. I can't imagine Antoine bringing Plato to the University of Pittsburgh, but I bring Plato to the classroom to invite people to navigate all their senses when they're learning. And not just Play-Doh, but fidget things. Well, just being creative. I mean, you know, there are different ways of sure. learning things. I mean, I, you know, uh, you, you know, the one, a couple of things, you know, that we've already talked about the whole, and I want to go back to also Paul talked about the practice and, and, you know, the practice and practice and the deliberate practice aspect. You know, I recall there was a um, study was a research study i think they did it with musicians when they divided musicians find that when you divide musicians into a top third you know in the top uh, i think into the top third and bottom third of skill of skill level since we want to also skill level need to be built you know as rated by their teachers as rated you know by their supervisor teacher what divides them more than anything is the amount and amount and the quality of daily practice. Mm. We can talk about the amount we've been talking about, you know, intensive kind of, you know, and, and, and this whole deliberate practice, we're talking about mindful practice. When I tell people mindful, mindful practice, or, you know, what, what does it mean mindful? There's still a lot of people get confused. You know, I said, it can apply to all aspects of your life you know, about, you know, eating mindfully, uh, thinking mindful, I mean, you know, on all this, you know, and again, this goes back also to individual variations, because, because we have to admit it, and I have to admit over the course of more than 20 years that I've been teaching MI and training MI, is that I, I ran into, and you talked about it, Amy, I ran into situations where with some trainees, they can't really, uh, embrace that spirit they for whatever reason i i feel disconnected from them like i work so hard to really help them really kind of look at maybe this is something you can fit into your style who you are you know and 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 we're talking about the humanistic you know approach aspect of it and 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 they don't they can't 
really do it. They, they, and, and this is the same story with the example you gave, Amy, about uh, uh, this person, you know, that, uh, and, and, you know, that the example that you gave, I, I have a tendency to the cheerleading, which is cheerleading versus affirmation. And I see the cheerleading a lot in medical school. You know, I, I tend to really not tell them cheerleading is not good or cheerleading doesn't work or because, you know, it, it, look at DBT. DBT is all based on cheerleading. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's kind of really when you think about am I the difference, you know, the, and then the DBT researchers will tell you, oh, it does really work. What are you talking about and everything? I, I guess one of the things that I would avoid doing during training and teaching is that sort of really getting into a debate whether this approach works or this approach doesn't work. Because, you know, in a sense, you, you, you're not, you, uh, uh, you know, if you're going to, you're going to lose the argument. Right. Like, what is the point? Well, and the interesting you know, thing is the interpretation of the learners in the room is something to consider. I could have defended what I said or didn't say because mm -hmm. I don't say cheerleading is bad or you shouldn't do it. And you could try affirmations and make it stronger, see how it works. It still gets misinterpreted sometimes or interpreted a certain way because everybody's diverse. But I did add a third ingredient to the list. And I'm curious, maybe if Paul, you add three, we have maybe nine different points. <laughs> Hope. Mm. That when you said, Antoine, that's, and I've experienced that too. And I wonder if you have, Paul, people come to the workshops, it could be the intensive one, it could not be. And just that, that couple few people are just like, mm, they're not feeling it. They're not, their heart's not in it. They're, I still have hope that we're planting seeds. Not that that's my intention to change people's minds necessarily, have hope that that it'll connect with them in due time, perhaps, when they're ready, if they choose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I mean, this is, a, this is what we've been discussing about, uh, you know, that uh, coming to terms also with a subset of people, subset of groups that might not be either capable of embracing the spirit or uh, having some sort of a really personality that might not be a good fit. Or I, I don't know, again, I, I, it's hard to explain mm -hmm. how, how, can, how can you not like embrace an approach that is really based on, and, and this is an approach, a humanistic approach, it's based on social justice. You care about people. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what am I, is that you, you really care genuinely about people. And how, I mean, as, are there the other ways of caring and generally about, there might, of course, there might be other ways, you know, but do they work as well? I'm not really sure about that. You know, I, I, I love the fact that you frame that in that, you know, you, you really care about people. And, and I think sometimes for some folks, what the barrier can be to adopting MI is that they care so much about people, mm -hmm. they can't let go of their fixing reflex. Mm -hmm. yep. And and that's, you know, one of the things that I love to say in a training 
is that I'm never going to be cured of my fixing reflex. MI helps me to learn how to manage it. Yes. Because I may always want to jump in, quote unquote, with what I think is the right answer or what I think is the right resource or the right suggestion. And as a human being, I want to do that because I care and I'm choosing to practice an evidence-based practice where I can acknowledge that desire and not act it out so that I can serve and connect with that person's motivation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to Amy's question about the three things that I would underline from the facilitator, teacher, trainer perspective, one of the things that I think is most important to me, and, and I can honestly say I've had this experience every time I've had the opportunity to train, and I train motivational interviewing fairly regularly, I'm positioning myself as someone who's continuing to grow. Yes, I'm the guide. I'm the facilitator. But because I'm in a learning community with you, whether it's the intensive, more didactic training or whether it's the group practice session, I too am a learner in that situation. And yes, maybe I have a certain amount of experience. And yes, I have a perspective just like everybody else in this room. And motivational interviewing allows me to be in a place of being a lifelong learner. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I I would throw out is that um, I've come to see for myself that there's a a very striking difference between understanding MI, being able to spit back all the acronyms, all the, you know, all of the the content piece. There's a there's a there's a huge canyon between someone who has great facility at doing that and then the actual practice of MI. And yes, we do need a certain amount of intellectual foundation in order to be able to put things into practice and i've i've learned to back away from becoming dogmatic about people having that that sort of sharp and clearly defined intellectual understanding and then the last thing and you know, the more I've practiced MI, the more I've trained it, the more I've been able to have conversations like this. It's very exciting and terrifying at the same time, I think, for learners to realize that there's no one way. And they often will come to the MI training workshop class and think, well, I'm going to learn how to do this and then I'm going to do it. And every time you engage in an MI conversation, what you're saying is I'm signing up to get on a roller coaster and I don't know where this roller coaster is going. And all I need to do is be present, partner with this person and try and understand it from their perspective. So this idea that I love learners to walk away with either in an intensive training or a practice opportunity that there are multiple ways 
to engage in this MI conversation that can all be MI congruent. Yes. So those are my three. Thanks, Paul. Sure. You know, a couple of things, you know, that you mentioned that I will emphasize, as you know, now in the fourth edition that's coming up, talk about the empowerment. Mm. So I think that would be an interesting argument when this person is going to be really telling you that she's leading works, how, you know, affirmation is tied to empowering. Does really she's leading empower people? Mm. Does it draw on, you know, from within the resources? I mean, I'm just, just just a question for somebody, for, for this person to really reflect on, you know, versus affirmation when you're pointing out their effort, you know, of how they, the changes they've made, you know, how, how hard they worked, you know, and pointing it out, you know, in, in a way that can empower them. And, and that's the reason, you know, why they try to, because they use the word evocation, as you know, in two different ways. To me, you know, I think it's just, uh, it's still evocation. It's still evocation. It's empowering through evocation, <laughs> you know. So I mean, which whichever way you want to look at it, and 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 uh, and the whole aspect of what you were talking about with the, you know, uh, fixing reflex and everything is that we talk about also the struggle with the, the you know, and this is we uh, see that in the context of mindfulness and all this is the limits of helpfulness. You know, am I also puts you in a way, gives you that kind of sort of, okay, I say not possible, gives you that sort of really sense that, you know, you are really, uh, 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 you know, that you have limits when it comes to the helpfulness, when, you know, what it, you know that you would want to embrace the fact that you have limits on terms of how much you can influence or be the catalyst to the process of change you have to come to terms with that otherwise you know you, that you wouldn't be practicing you would not it would go again against you know you know what 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 it means you know to be uh, 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 present with the person you know and then remember you know against being a mind mm. you know that's such you know, an important but, point about reminding ourselves and others that we have limitations we can only mm -hmm. go so far and that really speaks to the spirit of people have their own volition they could tell you right now you can be engaged with them for years and years and they tell you they're going to leave today and go make that change and maybe they do maybe they don't mm -hmm. i think to me as an mi trainer these aspects are the hardest to teach and convey to mm. folks that actual practice and how does it feel? How does it land on us? How does it work? For mm. some? Because people are looking for the recipe, the list. Oh yeah. Mm. You know, I, I'm wondering maybe as a way of kind of tying up this issue, this, this particular episode and this particular topic, we did get, uh, someone who wrote in and was talking about uh, really embracing motivational interviewing and then going back to their work site 
and realizing that they were kind of uh, alone in the fact that they were practicing MI with the folks they were serving, but their colleagues were not practicing MI. And the question that we got, and I'd be very curious, because this is almost like having an uh, an internal teacher or an internal facilitator, what your thoughts might be about how this person could potentially have a positive MI impact on their colleagues and help their colleagues to consider embracing or at least being curious about the practice of motivational interviewing. Ooh, that's a good one because I could imagine, Antoine, yeah, you have various aspects of how mm-hmm. you experience that in yeah. university setting, in a hospital setting, and in a clinic setting because you wear several different hats. Diverse, uh, you know, experiences, you know, and what are your thoughts about that? What What happens in your work when you see other practitioners? maybe doing am i inconsistent things or incongruent things to where your heart is you know i i mean that's that's a very challenging question you know i again i uh, not going to go against what i believe you know about being a my you know because obviously it's not about just practicing am i as we say you know it's about being a my which is going and really um on the attack you know what i mean it's like you know and i i'm capable of doing it anybody's capable you know and um um so i i really make some few points i'll have some kind of a non-threatening conversation and listening to their perspective sharing my own perspective you know and uh letting them decide where they want to go with that I mean, you're going to tell me what more could you do? Or again, if we're going by, you know, embracing and living by the spirit of am I, I I am not to change how people think. Mm -hmm. There could be coming, as I mentioned, from, it could be multifactorial, you know, and could be multifactorial. And, you know, and uh, uh, you would want to, have that conversation and as you said it before amy it might kind of really make the, it might uh, make them think you know differently or not mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i mean i i i've been i i don't let go totally at the same time i wouldn't work too hard because it's not about me mm-hmm. you know it's about what they want to do you know and i can probably I, mean, I would I would always hope, you know, they would listen to my perspective. Mm-hmm. And most of the time they do. Whatever mm-hmm. they're going to do with it, it's up to them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it speaks to what you said earlier too, Antoine, about the idea that in MI in general, regardless of whether we're trying to uh, have some sort of dialogue with a colleague or whether we're having a dialogue with a client, there are there are limits because we are we are respecting this person's autonomy to ultimately choose what they're going to do and that shouldn't necessarily keep us from engaging in an mi consistent mm-hmm. conversation with somebody and 
and I want to underline something that you said because I really heard it. It was it was so beautifully articulated that you would make every effort to try and understand their perspective. And that's different than trying to convince somebody to do something different. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Excellent point. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Nice. Great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I mean, I've learned a lot, you know, and I, I'm inspired more and more to really kind of uh, share my perspective, you know, and listen to other people's you know, perspectives like you guys, you know, who have been also in uh, really uh, uh, doing so much of that work, which is really impressive, you know, and I I kind of feel a bit jealous, you know, because I would love to do more of, of that. I haven't been, I've just been too much consumed with other stuff in my life, you know, but uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's always, it's rejuvenating when you keep really doing that. Right. We can invite you back to another episode if you'd like to be rejuvenated I, again. <laughs> I th I think that Antoine has played his cards very would right. Love, would, love, would love to be with <laughs> you guys again. And, and Antoine, please, just please confirm for the listeners that we neither bribed you nor spoke with you before <laughs> to, to get you to say you wanted to come back. Yeah. Well, no, because uh, we can't get anybody to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's a good, that's a, that, that works best. That would, would really have an impact on me. Yes. Well, it's really been a pleasure to meet you, Antoine. And, and thank you so, so much for being a part of this really thank rich conversation. Great seeing you, Andy, too. You too. Thanks for listening to episode 20 of Lions and Tigers and Bears MI. Be on the lookout for new episodes on evoking simple and complex affirmations, focusing and listening to understand coming out in the near future. Cassette Podcast Network. This podcast has been brought to you by the Cassatt Podcast Network, located within the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies at the University of Nevada, Reno. For more podcasts, information, and resources, visit cassatt.org.